the Royal Australian Air Force in person, 1921 to 2021. Ad Astra Aviator. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. The narrator is Gareth McRae, OAM. Air Vice Marshal retired Bob Richardson, AOAFC, qualified as an RAA fighter pilot in 1962 and flew Sabre aircraft with 77 Squadron in Malaysia, Singapore and North Borneo for nearly three years during the Indonesian confrontation. He was also attached to 79 Fighter Squadron in Thailand four times for CETO air defence operations. After a tour as flying instructor, he qualified at the United Kingdom Empire Test Pilot School in 1968 and subsequently spent 13 years on experimental and developmental test flying activities and supervision of the RAAF Aircraft Research and Development Unit, including several years on Sabre, Mirage and Mackie acceptance testing. He was actively involved in the evaluation of the Mirage replacement, culminating in the selection of the FA-18 Hornet fighter in 1981. He, in fact, was the first Australian to fly the prototype Hornet in 1980. He was promoted to Director General Manning Air Force 1988, after which he completed the 1991 Royal College of Defence Studies course in London. He was then appointed Air Officer Commanding Training Command in 1992, leaving early in late 1993 to be the sole military author of the 1994 Defence White Paper Defending Australia for the Keating Government, working directly to Defence Minister Robert Ray. After further appointments as Chief of Air Force Personnel and Budget and Deputy Chief of the Air Staff, He transferred to the Air Force Reserve in 1997 and retired after 41 years in 2002. Bob flew over 5,000 hours in 25 RAAF, Army and Foreign Military aircraft and 250 hours in sailplanes. Well, Bob, welcome and it's good to chat. Good to be here, Gareth. I want to start with a silly question. Why did you join the RAAF? My father uh, had been a welder and got himself uh, laid off from a protected occupation in 1941 on the year I was born in Melbourne. And uh, he joined the Air Force and started his pilot training on the day that I was born in uh, Epworth Hospital in Melbourne. And in, in the, air training, the Empire Air Training Scheme, most people went to South Africa or Canada or all over the world yeah. to train. He trained at Essendon. And his instructor was Clyde Fenton, the famous first flying doctor, uh, who wanted to be a fighter pilot because he had thousands of hours of flying experience and of course what the Air Force wanted was him as an instructor. He went on to England uh, and uh, trained on torpedo bow fighters in 254 squadron and finished the war with a DFM and a DFC after he was commissioned. I grew up with aviation. Uh, I mean, I was a little kid on his farm that he started in uh, in uh, Victoria after he got out of, out of the Air Force. He didn't talk much about his own Air Force flying. In fact, I've written a lot about it lately, yeah. more lately. But he was in the Air Force, so I think it was the Air Force Association, but people all talked about it and people would come around and a barnstormer arrived, as I mentioned before, and took me for a ride in a Tiger Moth uh, and I was seven years old. And I can't say I enjoyed it. Uh, uh, 
I was terrified, actually. How old were you when you decided to jo- actually join? Ah, well, you see, I was gliding from the age of 17 uh, at Lord Casey's private airfield at Berwick in Victoria with the Victorian Motorless Flight Group, which was the first gliding club formed in Australia well before the Second World War. Right. And, and gliding was cheap, you see, uh, with a winch launch, which, of course, uh, I mean, as a teenager, I'm driving the winch and I'm driving the Ferguson tractors to tow the cables and, and I'm learning to fly. But eventually I realised that if I was really wanting to fly, the best thing was to get the Commonwealth to pay for it. And how old were you when you joined? Uh, I was 20. 20. So it took me a while to, to sort of wake up to that. But I was in the Air Training Corps. I was a cadet, but I didn't rise very high in the Air Training Corps at Frognall in Melbourne. Obviously, air flying is, is in the family. Flying was in the family, not in earlier generations, but my dad had never seen an aircraft, but he, he had been forced out of his private school in Melbourne by the Great Depression, and he was uh, mining in uh, at, the, at the Mount Isa Mine, where his brother was the first accountant at the Mount Isa Mine. And uh, one of the great air races, it was at the McRobertson Air Race in about 1930-something, supposed to come through, but it did come and land at Mount Isa, and that was the first time he'd ever seen an aircraft. I said, why did you join the Air Force? He you knew nothing about flying. He said, I can't remember the figure, but two bob a day. He joined for the money. Flying pay was the highest pay of anyone in the military in those early days of the war. And having had times when he didn't know where his next meal was coming from when he was mining for his keep in Gippsland in winter, he knew what a bob was worth and uh, he joined the Air Force because it paid a bit extra. So you've joined in 1961? 61. 61. Point Cook. Well, Peter was actually back course to our course, uh, if I remember correctly, but uh, over at Pierce. But I was on 43 pilots course with Trevor Richardson, my namesake, who was no relation. And what do you remember about your first couple of months at Point Cook as in the Air Force? Terrified the whole time about being scrubbed. Grubbed. The loss rate, I think we had 23 or 20, 22 or 23 uh, cadets on our course. We were cadet airmen cadets. We were cadet aircrew wearing an officer's cap, but we were we had A numbers, so we were commissioned during the course, which was our, our officer training course as well as the pilot's course. And we started with, I think, as I say, 22 or 23, and we grabbed graduated six plus Peter, who was back course. So we this Peter you're talking about is no doubt Peter Ring, who, who Peter we Ring, all love. who is with us here, and who was my best man, and we went through pilot's course yeah. and so Well, we've interviewed Peter in past, so we won't dwell on Peter's career. Let's dwell on yours. At Point Cook, were you first training in the wind gear? In the wind gear. And uh, I had been gliding, but I had never really done any powered flying. And I was airsick on my first flight. On your first flight? On my first flight. No, I was quite shattered by that because at least I thought having done a fair bit of gliding and, you know, been solo for a couple of years, I uh, I didn't think I should be airsick. But of course it was the smell, smell of, the, of fuel. the petrol. And I recovered from that. But I've always had a slight tendency to motion sickness. If I was off flying for a few years, I'd feel a little bit queasy when I first went, go back but to But you acclimatised to that? Yes, yeah. uh, I was able to overcome it. I was never a, a, never a problem for me. And what do you remember the wind you being like to fly? I uh, well, it, it was when you a, actually learned it, to fly. It was a big machine for a cadet to to be in charge of, and uh, I later went back uh, after my uh, my fighter tour. I went back as a, a flying instructor on windjills, and I loved the windjill. I, I what was I, so special about it? It was an easy aircraft to fly badly, and quite a difficult aircraft to fly really well. As a tail dragger, putting that thing down on three points, making sure you had the tail wheel locked, because if you did aerobatics and pushed the stick forward, you unlocked the tail wheel. Yeah. And the, the, 
you could then very easily ground loop on landing. If so it was a demanding aircraft to fly really well. And of course I was uh, in the Yellow Streaks aerobatic team briefly before I went to test pilot training. But uh, I loved the windshield and I still think it was one of the finest trainers. I know when I was a little boy and I grew up, when you spent a lot of time my grandmother's in a suburb in Sydney called Enmore, which is reasonably close to Kingsford Smith Airport. And I can remember as a little boy these jets flying overhead with two tails. And it was the vampire. Jumping from the windshield to the vampire, what was that like? Well, it was a jet, you see, and uh, this was the jet age, wasn't it? We're talking uh, the early 60s. Uh, yeah. uh, it was smooth and quiet and powerful, and uh, I had no difficulty keeping up with it. I've often laughed about the fact of speed in flying from supersonic aircraft right down to the things you first trained on. Each one of them you have to adjust and look ahead and think ahead further and further and further, and I, uh, I later did some flight testing at 600 knots at 200 feet, testing a navigation system, and it's really just as simple. You just look further ahead. There's only so far you can look ahead, Bob, <laughs> depending how fast you're going. But it's it's quite straightforward and, and human beings can adapt to anything. Now, I know that obviously you retired as Air Vice Marshal. Uh, we will come to that role shortly because I want to talk about the role of an Air Vice Marshal. And I also want to talk about some of the people that in your career have had an impact on your life. But what I want to talk about is your graduation as a fighter pilot. What did that mean to you as a member of the Royal Australian Air Force and what was your first posting? All the time through your, your training you, you've got compared to nowadays scrub rates, failure rates that take you out of the particular field that you were hoping to be in. You're always nervous about, are you going to make it? Am I going to make it? I want to pay tribute to Flight Lieutenant Tex Watson, very well known in the Air Force uh, throughout his career. He was my flying instructor on vampires at Pierce. I'm standing in his little cubicle meeting this uh, big bloke. He was the same height as I am, but about two pick handles across the shoulders. And, <laughs> and, and I was skinny and thin. And he said, well, Richardson, uh, what do you want to fly? Uh, if you graduate. <laughs> I said, sir, uh, we've lost so many. I said, I haven't really thought about what I want to fly. I said, I just want to want to make it. And he said, well, I only train fighter pilots. I said, sir, I want to be a fighter pilot. And quite truthfully, not just that, but his whole attitude towards instructing. I only realised much later when I did two tours of flying instruction, both basic yeah. and advanced, just how, how bloody good Tex was. He instilled confidence in me but was never over friendly or, or uh, you know, it was always sir and, and all that sort of thing, but he gave me confidence. And he, he didn't ever really tell me that I was doing well, but somehow or other, I, I think through his uh, very capable demonstrations and instruction, sure. I got the message that I actually could do this. You've mentioned a couple of times now the fear of being scrubbed. Did that in any way, shape or form inhibit the rapidity of your progress? I've or? often thought about that because I have no doubt in my mind and I suspect Peter uh, listening to this would agree with me there are, were quite a few people who should have graduated and who just were beaten by the beating down and the, the, the fact that no one sort of took them aside and said, now look, you can do this. Don't fret about it because it's very difficult to perform when you're worried about getting kicked out. Getting kicked out. But on the other hand, you can make an argument that that's what you want in uh, com yeah, well, combat I, I can see the argument on both sides. <laughs> yeah. Some of the people that we've had the privilege of talking to have said that some tr there's trainer A and there's trainer B completely different personalities and trainer B may be a little bit more gentle and a little bit more tr helpful in 
now that you're doing this wrong, you couldn't yes. do it this way, and that makes that person succeed and not be scrubbed out, and then there's the trainer, the other trainer, Ray, who's right. do it this way and no other way. And all people are different. Exactly. And everyone needs a different approach. Exactly. And I have, because I did two tours of flying instruction myself, including as a supervisor, I've thought about this a lot, and uh, we need them all, and not everyone can be a fast jet combat pilot. Exactly. But there is a bit of an attitude of mind that needs to be encouraged and engendered. I've thought about scrub rates and things like that. I think it was ridiculous, the scrub rate of the 60s, but there has to be a certain amount of pressure to perform because in the end you are training people that have to be capable of, uh, of going out and doing very dangerous things indeed and they have to be able to handle stress and pressure. Well, something must be right because we have one of the best air forces in the world, maybe a small one, but one of the best. How did you get into 77 Squadron? How did that well, posting occur? All of the people off my pilot tours, uh, nearly all went to fighters. Uh, it was about three, two-thirds, three-quarters of, of, of the uh, seven or eight graduates. But everyone else stayed in Australia and I was posted straight to 77 Squadron uh, with my, my new wife. What was her first name? Uh, Judith. Judith. Uh, Ju- yeah. Judith uh, what year was that? Uh, that? We were married in 1963 and uh, Peter Ring was my best man. And, uh, while I was on the Sabre course, in fact, of New Year's Day, we picked New Year's Day because it was the only day we were sure we would have off. But Tex Watson was my instructor on Sabres and that gave me great confidence because not that he was any different, <laughs> he was a, a, a hard taskmaster, but I could sense that he knew that having got my wings, and I didn't feel at any time during that sober conversion course that I wasn't going to make it. It was more how well I would do, and I think I graduated second or third out of six. So in 77 Squadron, you're flying sabres, you're Malaysia, Singapore and North Borneo? We uh, get on a Malaysian Airlines DC-3, which was the aircraft of the Third World Airlines, uh, and I've I've loved the DC-3. It's the most magnificent aircraft I've ever flown, by the way. I believe the DC-3 is the greatest aircraft of the 20th century. We had the Madad at our Aircraft Research and Development Unit for many years, uh, doing navigation survey and providing transport support. And I used to fly them, but only in the right-hand seat uh, a bit. But when I went back as commanding officer on my fourth tour as a test pilot, uh, it was no point in me doing fast jet work. So I did a full captaincy on the Dakota. I flew in all weathers in winter across the Alps with a full load of academy passengers where we didn't have single engine performance, had to go to Wagga and just to be sure and operating the de-icing system because most people don't know that only the military Dakotas had de-icing systems, a full full de-icing on the wings, uh, empennage and and on the propellers of course. I cannot believe that the DC-3s were flying in the sort of weather we know in Europe and uh, and America without any anti-icing gear. But ours had anti-icing gear and to operate that successfully it was a bit of an art. So I became, I think, a very competent captain on DC-3s and I loved it. Let's stick with 77 Squadron in Malaysia, Singapore and North Borneo. So I arrived up there and uh, Squadron Leader Ray Trabilko was acting CO because Wing Commander Victor Cannon was uh, was uh, CO, CO up in uh, in Newbon. And I marched in there in my, uh, my new starched uh, shorts and tropical uniform and saluted the squadron squadron leader sitting behind the CO's desk and he said well Richardson I don't know how it happened but you've come straight from uh, OCU 
and he said, this is the sharp end and we only want experienced pilots here. You're going to be flying on my wing or Wing Commander Cannon's wing for quite a while. That's a good start. And I am standing there rigidly at attention thinking he doesn't want me. He, he doesn't think I'm up to it. That was a bit shattering for, for, for a little while, but I did fly on his wing a couple of times and, and apparently uh, they needed me up at Ubon pretty quickly, so I'm still living in the E&O Hotel but not having moved into a house yet and I'm off to Ubon having been categorised Cat C. So in other words, I was then a properly qualified fighter pilot. Whereabouts did you come very, very close to killing yourself? Yes. Uh, I mean, I later operated Sabres out of 5,000 foot runways at Laverton uh, for many years. And that was a bit of a challenge. But 7,000 feet, there was nothing wrong. It was only 1,000 foot less than Williamtown and the other bases. But Trebilco thought that that, that was a short runway and uh, special procedures should be taken. But he didn't sort of tell anyone else this. And he was coming in inside the wing roll that you get just near the stall of a Sabre. Uh, where you can uh, you can hold it with extra rudder etc so he was coming in and landing 15 to 20 knots slower than the recommended speed and of course I didn't know this and so I'm coming round at landing as a as a four ship I'm the, I'm his number two of course being the junior boggy and I didn't really realise, being a bit inexperienced, that I was catching up to him a bit as he flared for landing. I was about, I suppose, a couple of thousand feet behind, landing behind him, uh, and of course I'm approaching at the at the, at the, the right the speed. recommended <laughs> speed. Anyway, as I flared over the uh, over the threshold uh, piano keys, I hit his wing wash because at a higher angle of attack he was using, and there was just a very light drift that took it one way slightly. And in the space of one to two seconds, I went whack, 90 degrees of bank down, 90 degrees of bank. That's with the wing pointing straight at the ground. Straight at the ground. I'm 90 degrees of bank in the flare, and I instinctively booted on full rudder and uh, an aileron, picked the wing up, and it came straight back to where it was supposed to be, and I went ahead and landed. But what I didn't know, and didn't feel, fortunately, was that my wingtip had struck the concrete runway and a shower of sparks uh, came and the tower called up uh, number two you okay i pressed the button and probably with a slightly shaky voice said all okay well i was rolled out taxied it back and then got out and the uh, the entire wingtip uh, which is a fairing that was screwed on around the wingtip yeah. of the saber was dented in and not even worn right through but it worn about halfway through the airmen took it off took it into the, th the hangar I, w I went in with them and they put it in a vice and they tapped the dent out because it was still aluminium and it was still okay it hadn't worn right through they screwed it back on and it flew on the next sortie with you as the pilot no, no. <laughs> well, I wasn't so just sorry that. again that was that with 77 or 79 79 79 squadron by the way we didn't report anything there was no report <laughs> did he say anything to you he he didn't say anything to me. Well, he must have said something, but it wasn't much. This was the same bloke, by the way, that had told me that I really shouldn't have been there because uh, he, he had gone up to Ubon as well. You see, he was the CO, uh, the acting CO. But, you know, that would have been within a quarter of an inch of me finishing up as a flaming heap of wreckage and dying instantly. There's no way you could scrape a wingtip on the runway and then... No, and survive. We won't come to it right now, but the other thing, you have the privilege of having survived an ejection from a mirage as well, I believe. Yes, the second one built in Australia, A34, uh, was uh, just just gone through a full rewire uh, refurbishment at GAF Avalon, and I was doing the full engineer test on that. 
and uh, I came back fairly low on fuel off the high speed low altitude bit off the, off the Port Phillip heads and came up the bay and across over Altona and, uh, and across the top of, La of Laverton about 1500 feet at probably about 2000 feet under an 8.8's cloud base and the engine quit. Just died? Just died and it turned out the uh, drive shaft to the main engine fuel pump had gone uh, but I didn't know that and uh, I pulled up but there was a 8.8 cloud base at about 3,000 feet and I didn't pull up into the cloud. I could see Avalon and I knew that it was not going to glide there. I was sort of over Werribee. Anyway, uh, there were two other Mirages airborne at the time and I declared a mayday and uh, but I only had about 30 seconds from the time the engine failed until I banged out and uh, various of my colleagues, Chris Furs and uh, I think it was Barry Wilson, uh, were calling to me, get out Bob, get out, <laughs> because I'm gliding at 290, 280, 290 knots, uh, the, the glide speed of the Mirage, it goes down pretty fast. I was criticised in the Board of Inquiry for not ejecting earlier because I was below 2,000 feet and it's, that's a recommended that you really should get out earlier. But I'm looking at Avalon there and I just wasn't convinced that I had to get out of it. Anyway, at, at 700 feet, I heaved the stick back. I pulled down the negative G strap, cinched it very, very tight down into the seat. It was a premeditated ejection. It wasn't an instant ejection of the aircraft falling apart on me or anything. Yep. So because it was a premeditated ejection, I thought I'd use the face blind. Now, that was a mistake because being tall, and I'm 194 centimetres, uh, with the seat fully down, I still didn't didn't have enough room really to get the face blind over the top of my so I pulled my head forward and there's a one second delay once you pull the, the handle while the canopy is ejected yes. and I managed to get my head part way back but not quite fully back so I didn't come right down I suffered three compression fractures in my thoracic spine but because I didn't have my head fully back when the seat fired. But uh, it all worked perfectly and uh, 30 seconds later I'm lying on my back on the ground just digging my fingers into the, into the ground thinking, Jesus, terra firma feels. So where did the plane end up? I saw it hit. Uh, as soon as I got rid of the face blind, I saw it hit the ground and blow up and then realised that the uh, I'm drifting rapidly backwards. There was a 35 knot wind blowing. Now, jumping off the roof of a house or a height uh, while travelling at sort of 40 to 45 miles an hour is not recommended. But I had done a practice parachute jump into uh, Nelson Bay uh, as a volunteer and I decided after doing that I was never going to do that again yeah, because well. I didn't enjoy that much. You've had very, two very close encounters with near-death experiences. Well, uh, yes, I suppose so, but... but but I, I adopted the, the uh, that training, that parachute training that we did, which was just done on a Sunday, uh, Sunday morning or something like that, before we got in the caribou and leapt out. Out it was a very uh, perfunctory bit of training, but nevertheless, it told you how to adopt the, the right attitude and make yourself in, put your knees together and bend your legs so that you make a bit of a curve. And I was going backwards, which I thought was excellent to, to land going backwards. So I was very lucky. How did your appointment to a flying instructor occur at Point Cook? Uh, one of my great mentors was our fighter combat instructor uh, Mick Feiss, uh, who was who uh, died a long time ago. He was my neighbour, and uh, we used to spend a lot of time together. And I learnt so much about fighter flying from Mick Feiss, who was one of the finest fighter pilots that we've ever had in the Air Force. Very, very widely renowned. And he said, Bob, uh, when I said I don't know what to put in for for my next posting after two and a half years in uh, in Malaysia, he said. Go for a flying instructor's course, he said, it's a good idea to, you really learn about flying from that, he's dead right there too, and uh, you think you know about flying when you've been a fighter pilot for a few years, but really you don't. You've got 
more confidence than, uh, than knowledge. And the Central Flying School, regarded as the University of the Air, really did teach me to fly accurately. And if you're going to train people you've got, and show them what to do, you've got to show them accurately. Sure. And uh, that was great. So, uh, and Mick said, by going there early, you won't get locked into the system. You'll be able to go back to operational activities afterwards so and it was good advice it almost worked except that a lot of the people who were on the course with me because the Mackie was coming in to replace the vampire we were all told on the course that you'd be doing two tours and I went to Point Cook for 18 months and then was selected for test pilot training so all of my colleagues stayed on for years in, in the instruction and you world. become a test pilot and I, and I became a, an experimental test pilot what did that involve Bob they used to give you a, a certificate at the end of the course. They stopped doing that two courses before mine in 1968. The certificate said qualified experimental test pilot, qualified to fly all types. And the early test pilots that I got to know, uh, Milt Cotty and, uh, and others, uh, they literally did. They made a habit of whenever they went to a base or anywhere, they would, they would wangle a, a ride and jump in an aircraft and go and fly it. That was a, a carryover from World War II. And my dad did that. He was a, he was a weapons test pilot in between his operation, operational tours and he flew something like 45 different types not very many hours in them but he flew fighters and Lancasters and all sorts of things But if you're designated as a test pilot what were some of the things you had to do? You, you had to be able to basically determine the flying characteristics of an aircraft and write the flight manual of how to operate it safely and expeditiously And what aircraft did you get involved in doing that? Well for? there were 10 different types at the Empire Test Pilot School in uh, Boston down in, uh, in uh, near Wiltshire in England. England, yep. Uh, so we flew everything from the Viscount to gliders to the Lightning Fighter. And in fact, at the end of the course, they give you an aircraft that you've never flown before, and you are told that you are evaluating that for your country who is thinking of buying it. And uh, even though you've never flown it or know anything about it, you have to write a report. And there were three of us that were allocated three flights each in the Lightning, single seat Lightning, which yeah. was the fastest Lightning ever, that ever flew because it had the it was the development aircraft for the final lightning f6 and so it had the big engines in the f6 but the little ventral tank so it only had a 25 minute fuel endurance if you used the reheat which made it a very challenging thing to fly especially in winter because we do that at the end of the year the end of the calendar year so the, it was flaming raining and sleeting and i'm doing uh, we drew straws for the different things to look around the whole envelope for the three of us and I drew the second straw for the full max reheat uh, intercept climb out to Mach 1.8. And uh, that was my first flight in the damn thing. This was not enjoyable flying. This was just bloody terrifying, actually. We got away with it, but I did not have enough fuel to go round. When I came back off that uh, Mach 1.8 intercept climb, I did not have an... I, I had to make an ILS because it was raining. What's an ILS? Uh, an instrument landing approach. The aircraft had a beautiful coupled ILS, which is uh, which I wished we, we'd had in, in Australia. But in other words, it had an autopilot that would fly down, down to touchdown. But I had to land off that approach. I did not have enough fuel to go round. <laughs> so I'm making an instrument approach in an aircraft that I've never flown before and I'm running out of fuel. When you think of people, it's absolutely crazy. We lost two aircraft on my course. We killed the French test pilot in a, in a Canberra bomber and the bloke who went on to uh, almost win the shield for, for the top of the course, he banged out of a hunter in an inverted spin. 
deliberate inverted spin, but he lost control of it. What yeah. was the problem with the Canberra that the French student yeah. lost his he life? He was investigating asymmetric handling, which involves slowing the thing down until you lose control to investigate minimum minimum control speed airborne, which yeah. in the Canberra was always a problem with its wing, engines sure. on the wings. You have to do that at lower altitude where you get full power on the on the engine because yeah. you're simulating a takeoff situation. And he, uh, he lost it and went into cloud. And he was faced with an unusual attitude recovery upside down in cloud at about 7,000 feet. And he never had a hope. So the attitude towards flight safety at the Empire Test Pilots course in 1968, I've given addresses on this and uh, it's extraordinary how cavalier the RAF was about flight safety. And it was a carryover of World War II because nearly all the instructors and people all had World War II ribbons on their, on their uniforms. They were all very experienced pilots. In the 1960s, you see, everyone was keen on Mach 2 and very high-speed flying and not too much attention to a backup system. How would you compare then that period of time with the discipline and training in the Royal Australian Air Force as to this Cavalier? Chalk and cheese. Chalk and cheese. Mind you, uh, I think most people, most of my, my uh, contemporaries would agree that uh, we've made a terrific amount of progress in the late night in the in the 80s and 90s compared to the loss rate. I mean, when you think of the number of mirages that we lost, so high for all sorts of reasons. Really, it was because the aircraft of that era just did not have backup system. Later on, I, I had to think very deeply about this in relation to the evaluation of F-16s and, and the Mirage 2000 and the F-18 that we bought. You were looking to the replacement process, were you not, between the Mirage and the F-18, yes. the Hornet? I was the Wing Commander, Chief Test Pilot at Aircraft Research and Development Unit in 1977 to 1981. I actually had seven years in the unit straight, which included two years at Laverton, and then I was promoted to Wing Commander on the, on the move, so I stayed in the the unit as a wing commander for the next five years. It was a magnificent period and that was the highlight of my flying career because I was selected to be one of the two evaluation pilots on the what turned out to be three years of evaluation. We've never spent so much time and effort resources into evaluating any aircraft in the Air Force as we did in the, that culminated in the selection of the new tactical fighter, the F-18. So what turned you on to the F-18? What was it about it that made you say this was the right one to get? Well, we first went to France, and uh, and uh, although it, the French were reluctant to let us fly their uh, absolutely priceless prototype, they knew that uh, Bruce Grayson and I, Bruce was the operational uh, Evaluation pilot. He was more experienced in uh, fighter operating Mirage flying operations, whereas I had really only ever done test flying in the Mirage. And so we complemented each other. I was the handling test pilot and, and he was the weapons test yep. pilot. And we both flew the single seat Mirage 2000 prototype. Absolutely hand-built aircraft, beautiful, complete digital flight control system, the most delightful handling fighter I have ever flown far superior in its handling to the F-18 and the F-16, but it didn't have the systems. They were two generations behind the Americans with radar technology and other digital technology. So it still had the sim similar fuel system to the Mirage 3, a split system that you had to monitor the, the fuel feeding and see the light going on to, to show that that particular tank, which is ungaged, is empty. You had to monitor it the whole damn time. Uh, in the evaluation, it worked perfectly all the way through. But I was the first non-French pilot 
pilot to fly it and they were going to keep me in sight. It was a, a very interesting exercise and I set a record for the aircraft because I flew it for the first time with big external tanks because they didn't have any weapons that we could fly with but I wanted to load it up to see if it, it, what, what it would be like because big loads on. So I flew it with full tanks that had never been flown before. So uh, I had to have a briefing on what would happen if the, one of the tanks didn't feed and they said, well, Robert, you will then do our Mirage uh, tank jettison trial. We would like to, you to hold and we will tell you where to go while we launch a chase aircraft to film it <laughs> because you can't land with one full tank. So that was an interesting time. I was met with champagne at the, at the cockpit after landing because I'd just extended the longest endurance flight by an hour and a quarter. And that was a lovely aircraft, but it wasn't going to be for us. And uh, so we then looked at the F-16 and the F-18. And what was it about the F-18 that made you finally say, this is an aircraft we should have? Basically, the, the safety systems, the backup systems, the two engines. And don't forget, we were only offered, the at that time, the, F-18, the F-16A. Yeah. That was the Pratt & Whitney F-100 engine aircraft with uh, no reheat, uh, no, no light-off detector in the afterburner and a very mismatched engine and airframe. It was a very successful engine in the F-15, where it had two of them, but it was not uh, not well matched in the early F-16. What's your view about jets, even today, that only have a single engine, like, for example, the F-35? I have worried about that a bit, naturally, but uh, on the other hand, uh, touch wood, the record so far that shows that that engine is extraordinarily safe and extraordinarily reliable. I still worry a little bit about flying it for hours offshore with air refuelling, where you, if you needed to, to make a, uh, an emergency recovery because of some systems failure or yeah. fire or something like that. I do worry a bit about that in that in, in that sense. It's obviously doing the job, but the Hornet, the systems in the aircraft were so far so superior to the F-16 systems. The F-16, you see, was uh, designed to be a lightweight fighter to go back to where you've got terrific visibility and uh, the pilot sits out in the thing. There's no hardware, no, no canopy bow or anything like that. Were you the first... To fly. No, uh, a couple of others had flown it uh, before uh, before 1979, but I was the first to sort of do a really uh, an, an evaluation. So I took it out to 800 knots and and uh, Mach 2 and uh, doing a, an intercept climb. I remember talking to the uh, the General Dynamics uh, test pilot about that. He said it's very simple. He said you just follow the the head up display, the HUD the HUD will give you your vectors so you just sort of keep the keep the pipper on the, oh, the thing and, and for a maximum acceleration climb out to an intercept at Mach 1.8 they said you'll you'll transition at 20,000 feet how are you going to do that Bob and, and I said well I suppose when I get to 18,000 feet I'll be I'll be about 40 degrees nose high I'm going to have to push forward very hard they said no you can't do that they said uh, you, you, you must roll upside down, pull 4G to pull the nose down below the horizon. By the time you get it there, you'll roll back out again because you'll be at 1.2 and then you do a continuous uh, steady indicated airspeed climb out to 1.8. That whole thing from releasing the brakes out to 1.8 was something like uh, 95 seconds or some, some, some ridiculous time like that. But I had burned, this thing, this thing only had 6,500 pounds of fuel and I was back to about, about 1,000 pounds by the time I was out at 1.8. As soon as you come out of burner, of course, being a high-bypass turbofan, it'll run on the smell of an oily rag, so there was no problem getting home. But you can't do anything. In other words, you, you could go out there and launch a missile and then come straight home. So it's most impractical. I want to know how you got involved in 1994 as being the author of the white paper 
called Defending Australia. How did that come about? I've often wondered about that. I, uh, I had done the Royal College of Defence Studies in 1991, which is a fascinating time to be looking at Europe just after the fall of the Berlin Wall, and we did study tours of Eastern Europe. And I came back to be AOC Training Command as an Air Commodore, and I had been an Air Commodore in personnel before I went overseas. So I was a reasonably senior Air Commodore, and I had had the command of my life. I, I had a command of one third of the Air Force, which was the non-operational third of the Air Force Training Command. Uh, I was a member of the uh, Chief Air Staff Advisory Committee, uh, along with all the other two stars, and I loved it. I was awarded an AO for leading the way with contracting out the non-operational required functions, which was a requirement of the government. But the other two services had been dragging the chain, and we had done a lot of work in personnel division to work out who needed to be in uniform and who we could contract out which of course was a lot of the catering and base support services in the training commands. So I led the way and we, we uh, I signed the first four or five contracts. But uh, I got a phone call, I'd just come back, I was asked to fly an aircraft under my command so I chose the PC-9 over, over, uh, over the 748 at sale. I loved being able to fly around to my bases because I had bases as far as Townsville and Pierce and yeah. Wagga. And I had just come back from a Kazakh meeting when the phone rang on the tarmac because I'm pushing we had no, no servicing. I had to do a servicing course myself to do A and B servicings on the aircraft because the 21 squadron reservists weren't qualified to work on it. So my, my car driver and I pushed the aircraft in and out of the hangar, did our own little servicings and there was no air traffic control at Lebanon in those days so Terry would drive up and down the runways to make sure they were clear before I took off, etc. All good fun. Uh, Air Marshal Gration uh, rang me up uh, and said, Bob, I need you to come to Canberra. I'm, I'm standing on the tarmac in a flying suit. I need you to come to Canberra because you're going to be the co-author of the 1994 white paper. And this was 1993. And I said, gee, sir, I've got so all these contracts running. And he said, he said, well, you need to do it. And by the way, you need to be here next week. He said, you need to be here next week to start the process off. But he said, you can go back and then hand over uh, to uh, an acting AOC uh, over a week or two. And so uh, that was the start of two years on the uh, Defence White Paper project. I didn't have a university degree. I, I've still wondered about that and uh, I've asked Barry Gration a number of times, how did I come to be selected? No one could tell me. But he, he gave me to understand that if this sort of all worked out, it was a pretty big ask. We had a, a, PhD, a PhD civilian who was superb and me. We were working, of course, up through the two, three and four star levels, but we were working for the minister. This was a cabinet paper. The white paper you see is a government cabinet paper on defence. It is not a defence document. Its minister is the boss and you have to satisfy him and he has to convince the cabinet to look forward 20 years. And Who was the minister, do you remember? Robert Ray, the most effective defence minister this country has ever had. And I've got that from a senior Liberal minister at the time. Uh, so Robert Ray was a, a remarkable individual, a dyslexic, who didn't read easily, but he had a, the finest brain I've ever dealt with. He was a remarkable man, and he's never been given much recognition because he didn't talk to media, he didn't, didn't promote himself. He was the machine man of the Labor Party, along with Ro uh, Graham Richardson in yeah. New South Wales. Yeah. All of the Keating cabinet people really, I learned, uh, this may be an exaggeration, but so many of them owed their positions to a combination of Graham Richardson Graham, and Robert yeah. Ray in Victoria. 
when he wanted to get things through cabinet, he had a fair bit of support. My colleague and I, just acting together, we had to go and talk with all of the leaders of defence all around, in all the funny little areas, including the highly uh, classified uh, uh, intelligence areas. We had to find out what they were concerned about, looking forward, what they felt they needed, and of course, starting with the three service chiefs. So we went to each of the service chiefs and assured them that anything we put forward to the minister for this to go into this paper would always be not cleared but always be shown to them there would be no surprises in the white paper at any of the draft stages but of course what happened is we would draft a chapter <laughs> we'd send it to uh, these division heads and the chiefs and they would come back and say well we don't like that we don't like this we want it this way so then we would make some adjustments and then we would go through this again and again and again and again and eventually uh, uh, we would try to reach a compromise but in the end we, we would get the CDF and the vice chief to finally say they were the bosses of the service chiefs obviously yeah. and they would have to come to an, an agreement and so, it was up to the minister to be satisfied with what we produced. Let me ask a question out of field. In this 21st century, the white papers written in 1994, we now have the focus between Australia, the United States of America, Japan, India and England is the Pacific, the Asian part of the world. Was any of that foreshadowed as to what might happen? The rise of China was very apparent, but there wasn't a lot of attention given to a provocative or a power-hungry China wanting to control the world. It was more a hope that we would be able to get on with them. And of course that lasted through many subsequent white papers. We paid a lot of attention to Australia being an island continent. On the other hand, uh, there was a lot of pressure to have uh, a couple more uh, army battalions and, uh, and things like that. So how was the role of the RAAF painted? in this white paper. What did, did you foresee it being in the future? We were well equipped, but we were facing a bow wave of uh, obsolescence, especially in the transport aircraft. We still didn't really have the tankers and the uh, airborne early warning and those sort of things. We wanted all of those things, and uh, the biggest challenge was the final chapter called Funding Australia's Defence for the next the 20 years. Fun. Funding. And uh, we came up with the idea. It wasn't completely new. It had been talked about before, but no one had ever really sort of put it in a, in, a, in a strategic planning paper of a linkage to GDP. We wanted Australia's GDP, which you, you expect to be rising, we wanted a linkage 2% of GDP. Of course, I haven't mentioned the fact that not only did we have to uh, convince all of the uh, defence chiefs and, and division heads, uh, we had to convince the other members of the Defence Committee, which is Prime Minister and Cabinet, Foreign Affairs, Treasury, Finance. So you can imagine what Treasury and Finance thought about a linkage to GDP, which gives you a rising vote. They wouldn't have a bar of it. But Robert Ray did something very impressive and obvious when you think about it. Don't forget, Minister Beasley was the Finance Minister, and he and Robert Ray were like that. And Beasley had been Defence Minister and fully understood the problem that we were, we were facing. So Parliament wasn't sitting. Uh, Robert Ray said, uh, pulled his pipe out of his mouth and said, yeah, hmm, I'll, uh, I'll get the jet and go across and have dinner with Beasley. So he got the 
VIP aircraft on a Saturday and flew across, had Saturday night dinner with Beasley in Perth, came back and uh, we went to see him on the Monday and he said... Signed up for the GDP. Beasley made it happen. And and you have to compromise. Of course, the compromise was to add the word, the adjective, approximately. The last chapter says uh, that the government committed to approximately 2% of GDP. And of course, it's been talked about ever since. And, and even now, every every now and again, uh, both sides of Parliament talk about, you know, under under uh, the, the last Labor government, the previous one, it dropped to about 1.6 or something like that. History, I think, will judge. Kim Beasley as a very effective defence minister and potentially would have been a very good Prime Minister. The end result of the white paper was that the government changed, you see, at late 1994. So it didn't get a terrible lot of publicity because the new government simply wanted to do their own white paper, and they did. But if there was ever a criticism of it, it was that it didn't have anything really spectacular to say. A cabinet paper like that has to be a compromise. But Robert Ray was very pleased with it because he read a criticism in the media that it didn't really come out with anything that was really grabby. And he said to me, he said, that's exactly what I wanted. <laughs> Be that as it may, let me ask you a personal question. You married in 1963. How important has Judith been in your Air Force career? The love of my life, the supporter of my life, the raiser of my children. During the three years of that fighter evaluation, I was overseas and working in materiel here, away from Edinburgh, away from home, half of which of the those three years. It was really tough for her. She brought our kids up and and uh, did all those things and we finally settled on uh, raising alpacas together uh, uh, out near Yass and uh, built a lovely alpaca breeding enterprise on 120 acres there where I still live and she found a lump in her breast in the shower and we arranged an operation within eight days she was operated on which was quite an achievement actually uh, we got a wonderful surgeon and it had already metastasized and we fought that for three years so I lost her in 2010. And your memories live on forever. She died on the farm. I've nursed her at the farm until she died. Memories yeah. live on. Yeah. If you had to, in a sentence, give you a challenge, what are you most proud of in your Air Force career and more especially as Air Vice Marshal? It's not easy to answer that in a sentence. I would have to say that I'm most proud of the fact that in my service life of which went on with a bit of reserve service for 42 years. I have seen the Air Force mature from a, a band of brothers that were did some remarkable things in World War II, but really it was not very well led for much of its uh, early post-war years. And I have seen the technology embraced and I have had a hand as an experimental test pilot and as, and as a supervisor, more importantly, of other more capable pilots I have had a hand in the, the evaluation and also in the development of that, uh, that technology. I am most proud of the fact that we cleared the high-speed anti-radiation missile and the Harpoon missile off the F-111. Now, we didn't actually buy war stocks of it, but the aircraft were cleared and they were not cleared because our long-winged aircraft were ne never designed or intended to carry those sort of weapons. We did that clearance at Woomera and I spent many years. I think we never needed to use it, but we had it and we would have been able to get those war stocks from our great and powerful friend. I never qualified on the F-111, but I we had one of our own, of course, so for, for quite a few years and we pulled it apart and instrumented it and put it back together again, which the people at Amberley never thought we could do, but we did it. I flew in it quite a lot with my test pilots in the left seat. 
I, of course, got to fly it a fair bit. An hour and a quarter at Mac 1.6 to 1.8 out off Kangaroo Island doing uh, mass model stuff for ARL. Just fascinating to, to be sitting there in a shirt sleeve environment at, at those sort of speeds because all the time I'd done it in a mirage, you know, you're wearing all the kit and, and <laughs> comfortable and of course I could never get thigh contact on the damned ejection seat so I'm, I'm in agonising on that hard ejection seat and, and you're sitting in an armchair in the F-111. That, I thought, was gentleman's cockpit. Prob, you spent 41 years in the Royal Australian Air Force and you flew in excess of 5,000 hours in all sorts of aircraft. Could I say, on behalf of everyone who's listening right now, thank you for your service, and all I can say is job well done. Globally, the RAAF has between 500 and 700 people on operations every day contributing to coalition operations, peacekeeping and humanitarian and disaster relief. The RAAF takes pride in its service. It has a history of endeavour and sacrifice, which has won it a place in the hearts of all Australians and a position of respect among the armed services of all Australia's allies. The RAAF will never tarnish its record. It carries on in the proud tradition of Per Adua Ad Astra. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. Produced by Air Force Association New South Wales, which is a registered charity that focuses on the well-being of Air Force veterans and their families. If you would like to donate funds to help us with this important work, you can search Air Force Association New South Wales in Google and go to our website.